Neutral Foods was founded with the vision of becoming the first carbon-neutral food company in the U.S. Starting in milk, they knew that if they wanted their ambition to become a reality, they needed to get involved on the farm level. 72% of the climate impact of our milk occurs on farm. So we're not gonna meaningfully take responsibility for the carbon footprint of our products without focusing on on-farm operations. That's head of carbon reduction, Ann Radel. She said the company identified barriers to adopting climate smart practices and started working with dairies to overcome them. Finding the right financing to make that possible and the right experts to ensure that that is the right solution. That's really the beginning. The long tail of all of our work is in how do we measure and monitor the effects of that project to make sure that the climate benefit is actually realized over time. To begin selling carbon neutral milk from day one, the company uses a combination of insets and offsets with the goal, says VP of Product and Commercialization Jim Jarman, of eventually becoming as close to neutral in their supply chain as possible. Good farmers are the solution. This is the way we fix this. We don't fix it just by hydro credits in Brazil. That isn't the solve. The solve is to work with farmers to reduce the actual impact in the supply chain. The more of that we do, the more we can amplify our impacts for consumers and for farmers. Jennifer Barney sits down with the U.S.'s first carbon-neutral food company on today's Future of Agriculture podcast. Well, hello, fellow ag nerds. Thanks so much for joining me for another episode of the Future of Agriculture. My name is Tim Hamrich, and if you're interested in where innovative ideas meet practical realities in food production, I think you found the right show. Today's episode, and really every episode this quarter, is made possible thanks to the support of our quarterly presenting sponsor, which is Sound Agriculture. You just heard a couple episodes ago, Adam and Travis from Sound Ag, and this is really a great time to talk about their source product, because just about everywhere you look, fertilizer prices are high, and in some cases, availability itself has been a real problem. So finding a better source of crop nutrients going forward, I know is on top of a lot of people's minds. Well, believe it or not, and as you heard in that episode, that nutrient source might just be your soil. Source from Sound Agriculture unlocks more of the nutrients already in your fields so you can apply less fertilizer while getting the yield you're counting on. Source is a foliar applied biochemistry that activates soil microbes to unlock more nitrogen and phosphorus. It works with the soil you've already got and the equipment you already use to sort of wake up the soil, kind of like caffeine for microbes, if you will. Visit sound.ag to learn more. That's just sound.ag, and that link will be in the show notes. Thank you so much to Sound Agriculture for supporting the Future of Agriculture podcast. All right, now to today's episode, and uh, today's story is put together by my guest co-host for today, which is Jennifer Barney. Jennifer is back to co-host her third episode now after the first two, which featured Tefola and Seal the Seasons. She's a consumer packaged goods or CPG expert who lives in the Central Valley of California and got her start in the food industry 16 years ago when she founded the almond butter brand Barney Butter. I really find Jennifer's food industry background and entrepreneurial experience to be really valuable to bring onto the show and to bring these stories. And I also enjoy it in her weekly newsletter, which is called The Business of Food. You can subscribe to that at jenniferbarney.substack.com. Link to that, of course, in the show notes as well. But Jennifer, thank you so much for coming back to co-host another episode. Hey, Tim. Thanks for having me. Well, this is an interesting one. So uh, the guest you're featuring today is in kind of the carbon neutrality part of the industry, which is which is a really hot topic right now. But, you know, for you, having so much exposure to the entire, you know, food value chain, 
why did this one catch your attention for an episode? Yeah, um, I noticed this brand. Actually, it was announced in in some industry um, newsletters that a company called Neutral Foods was launching in the milk category, and the brand name was going to be Neutral. And I, you know, looked to see like, oh, this must be a plant based company or some sort of alternative company. And when it was real dairy milk, it really caught my attention. So yeah, they launched in Olive Sprouts last year. And then just recently when I was at the Natural Foods Expo, um, I noticed that they had won a Nexty Award. They had won an award for being the best new planet forward company. And so I said, you know, I got to get a hold of these people and find out what their story is. And um, I checked at Whole Foods, I checked at Sprouts, and I checked at Target, which are, are their three retailers. And they are either at price parity or actually up to a dollar cheaper than the leading organic brand, which is fantastic for consumer trial. Right. And it's one thing to to have a dairy and say, OK, I'm going to make my dairy carbon neutral. But it's a whole other thing to, you know, at scale, say we're going to offer milk to all these stores. I don't know how many Sprouts has, but it's got to be a lot. Uh, and it's all going to be carbon neutral and then have to work with the individual dairies to get them on board. That to me is just like a crazy feat that I heard about. I went, that just seems impossible to me. Yeah, exactly. And, and that's exactly what they're aiming to do. So um, milk has a huge household penetration, right? It's 93% of households have fluid dairy milk. They're starting with milk. They also have some butter. And I understand they're launching ground beef in some select stores. But yeah, they really are not working in the fringes of things. They're getting at the heart of things, which is on farm and kind of eliminating whatever friction that might be, whether it's expertise or financial or measurement. Really, I think that's also a hard one is, you know, quantifying it. Absolutely. Yeah. And I'll be honest, when I first heard about this company, the first thing I thought was, that's really a smart idea branding wise, but can they really back it up? And if so, how, how do they do that? How do they do all that uh, MRV and what's in it for the farmers that they're working with and how do they sort of incentivize them to make changes that maybe benefit all of us as society, but maybe not always directly benefit them, at least in the short term. So that's really what today's episode is all about. We're about to bring out Jim Jarman, who's Neutral Foods Vice President of Product and Commercialization, as well as Ann Radel, who is the head of carbon removal, to answer questions just like those. And for those of you listening, Jennifer also interviewed Neutral Foods CEO Marcus Lovell Smith, along with Ann and Jim. But due to some time constraints for the episode and an audio issue, you're actually only going to be hearing from Ann and Jim today. But this content is absolutely worth sticking around for, because I think once you hear the approach that they're taking and the rigor that they're applying to this, uh, you might also be convinced that they are one of many who will likely take similar approaches in the future. All right, I'm going to drop you into this interview where Jim Jarman does a great job of sort of setting the scene for today's episode when he explained to Jennifer what compelled him to join this budding startup after a career in the dairy industry that included positions with companies like Cargill, Lando Lakes, and Organic Valley. feature for me is that I've been working with Neutral since literally its founding. So when Matt Plitch, the founder of Neutral, was looking for a source of milk, because he had this crazy idea about this company he wanted to start, <laughs> he called Alpenrose out in, the, out in the Portland area and said, hey, can you guys bottle milk for me? And they said, sure. And he said, where do I get milk from? And they said, you should call Ovi. And I was at Organic Valley at the time. And 
I very distinctly remember these early conversations with Matt. And I had a very candid conversation with him. I said, Matt, you know, if, if you get to know me, you're going to find out I'm a pretty straightforward guy. And I got to ask you right out of the gate, like, why do you think Portland doesn't have enough organic milk? Because I've got lots of data that tells me there's organic milk there. What is this idea? And he said, well, I actually don't really care about organic milk. Specifically, I care about starting the first carbon neutral food company. And I'm starting with milk because it's in 93% of houses. And there's a direct connection that many people already understand between cows and emissions. And this is where we're starting but we've got this vision to do something different. And so from the very beginning of Neutral's endeavor, we were partners. And so I remember pitching this internally into why we would take a bet on this little startup idea in Portland that's in an already saturated milk market and bring it to life. And so I worked with Neutral for a couple of years at OV. And when I was looking to leave OV, I didn't actually know what I was going to do yet. I, I kind of thought I might be leaving the industry. And it turned out to be a perfect alignment of the stars that Neutral was looking to add some capability at the time when I was already out and trying to decide like what to do next after taking a few months of like chilling out and uh, kind of became the perfect, like I said, alignment of the stars to come and join this company that I was already really impressed with. I cared about their mission and matched so nicely to me with what I thought the dairy industry continued to need in terms of supporting farmers and in terms of what consumers actually care about. To me, one of the, the most interesting things as a general concept today in business is how much of a disconnect there is between what customers and consumers tell companies and brands that they want and what brands and companies are motivated to do and how that might be different than what consumers want. It's very, very disconnected. And neutral felt like to me a place that you can start to really address what matters to consumers and what matters to farmers at the same time while having this immensely positive impact on the future of the dairy food supply chain. We don't have a set of proprietary implementations that we're doing that nobody else could do. And in fact, if you think about like the grant applications that we put in for the USCA Climate Smart Commodities Grants, we talked openly about how we can teach NRCS and other organizations about the types of implementations that we're doing so that we can magnify the impact. We have an ability to create change in our own supply chain for our own consumers, while also seeding the change that can happen in our entire industry that can be outsized to what we do, right? So at Neutral, we're a little, we're a little startup brand. We're doing something new and amazing and we're growing like crazy and that's fantastic. But if you look at what percentage of the dairy market we are, you know, we're going to be way less than 1%. And so if we can take the things that we're doing, even in a great scenario, let's say we become 10% of the entire dairy market, that would be phenomenal. We'd still only be 10%. The practices that we are putting in place, the way that we can help farmers and help communities learn these practices to put in place can be way bigger than what neutral can ever do on our own. And so all of those things to me um, were part of the, the hook to say, why go be a part of this startup, this crazy idea this little group of folks who think that they can change the world. One of the main reasons that Neutral started is we realized the ability to bring people that delicious, wholesome dairy that they love, while also answering one of the big questions and concerns that more consumers have today than ever, which is what about the environmental footprint of what we're doing? And so by being on the cutting edge of that, we're, we're kind of coming back to that original idea I talked about with what do consumers actually want and how do we align our incentives as a company to what consumers actually want? Instead of saying, well, we want to do something and we don't care very much about the consumer. We need you to just get on board with what we're doing. 
And that I think is, is a thing that neutral can offer that's different than just about anybody else in the marketplace today. And I think that if when you can bring consumers a thing that they care about and that they're asking for, and you can do it in a way that also supports your food supply chain, supports farmers, tons of benefit there. That's also why we're carbon neutral since our founding. You know, we're not waiting to fulfill some pledge in 2030 or 2050. You know, if you look at the total dairy industry, their target is 2050. And no offense to all those guys, but not a single person that works at one of those companies today is still going to be there in 2050 when they finally fulfill that pledge. That's on us. We're carbon neutral today. We want to make sure that people can come and get that answer today. And so as awareness around, you know, consumer impact on climate change has grown and folks look for solutions there, it really makes a right opportunity in the market for somebody to be able to come in and bring them what they're actually asking for in a way that's differentiated versus anybody else in the market. You know, so we what we want to do is give people the opportunity to make an impact every single day. And that's also one of the reasons it's really important that consumers can feel confident about the message that we're sharing with them. As the first carbon neutral food company in the space, it's critically important that our credibility is impeccable. We can't have a scenario where we're cutting corners or playing fast and loose with things. We have to be serious about what we're doing. Part of the reason we have such an amazing science advisory group, part of the reason we have Ann Radel as our head of carbon reduction, she's a badass. She's amazing. She is a magical human being, but we have to be credible. So that's part of the reason we work with organizations like SCS. So when consumers pick up that carton off the shelf and it has that SCS logo right on it, they know it's been third-party certified by one of the most rigorous standards of anybody in the industry to make sure that we're doing the work that we say that we're doing. Great. So Neutral being a consumer-facing product, it's the name of the brand. So I would love to dig into how it is that you partner with those farmers. What are the programs that you are putting in place and we have um, your head of carbon reduction and Radel. And thank you so much for being on. And, you know, I would love to just hear from you a little bit about on the farm and the programs that you're putting in place and really what types of farmers are you partnering with at this time? And, and where are you along that trajectory of partnership? Absolutely. Thank you, Jennifer, so much for, for having me. Thrilled to be here. I think that when we talk about the work that we're doing on farm, it might be helpful to orient that work within our operating model. So for each of our products, we begin by rigorously evaluating the cradle to grave or life cycle carbon footprint of those products. So it's a very uh, specific scientific analysis that leads to a life cycle assessment. We're incredibly fortunate to partner in that with a gentleman, Dr. Greg Toma, who's arguably the seminal expert. He spent 12 years of his career evaluating the carbon footprint of a gallon of milk. <laughs> and he's visited 500 dairy farms in that pursuit. So working with Dr. Toma, we fine tune his models and calculations to build this really incredibly robust and conservative estimate of the climate impact for every product that we make. That evaluation tells us where are the largest sources of greenhouse gas emissions in making that product? And frankly, it's the feedback that is telling us we need to focus on farms. So by that, what I mean is when we look at our life cycle assessment, it tells us 
what's the carbon footprint of the fertilizer used on farm? How much of the carbon footprint comes from cows burping? All aspects of farm operations, all aspects of manufacturing and transportation, everything that happens in retail, everything that happens in, in home when it comes to consuming our, our products. It's a very broad analysis. It also goes very deep. The net of that analysis is 72% of the climate impact of our milk occurs on farm. So we're not going to meaningfully take responsibility for the carbon footprint of our products and eliminate that without focusing on on-farm operations. And to simplify that analysis, we know that the three largest drivers of the carbon footprint of dairy, especially for the unique pasture-based, relatively small farms that we partner with, it's really all about finding ways to reduce enteric methane, reduce greenhouse gas emissions by improving manure management, and changing how feed is produced. There are opportunities to both reduce the carbon footprint of how that feed is produced and even find ways to try to put more carbon back into the ecosystem by, for example, developing projects that are designed to increase soil carbon. So we know that we can reduce greenhouse gas emissions by changing what cows eat. And one of the projects that I'm really excited about, we're pioneering uh, currently across, I think, seven or eight different farms, is modifying forage to optimize for these secondary metabolites that plants already produce called tannins. So if you you know, taste that wine that's not quite ready and it gives you like that little bit of a pucker or that fruit that's not quite ripe, what you're tasting are tannins. Plants naturally produce these. It's a way of warding off herbivores. But research tells us that if you optimize and you know, cows don't want to eat something that's completely bitter, but there's a, there's a sweet spot where if tannins make up the right amount of a cow's dry matter intake, all of these fantastic things happen. They shed parasites, they reduce somatic cell count, which is an important aspect of cow health, so it improves animal welfare, and it's been shown to naturally reduce enteric methane production by somewhere between 10 to 20%. So we have those projects um, going on at seven, I think seven or eight different farms currently. We're doing that research um, closely, working with, of course, the producers, as well as academic researchers at Oregon State and uh, Utah State University. Uh, in addition, we're looking to reduce enteric methane by using feed supplements. As I'm sure you're aware, there's this kind of robust work happening currently to reduce enteric methane by feeding cows small amounts of things like red seaweed. Um, so we're pursuing kind of a myriad and diverse approaches there all around enteric methane in addition to reducing manure-related greenhouse gas emissions on farm by better managing manure. Basically, if a dairy farm typically works the way a typical dairy farm works, when they're managing manure, that manure is, is flushed and stored in a pond or lagoon where it decomposes anaerobically and has a significant greenhouse gas efflux or methane output. If you intercede in that operation and actually process that to separate out those manure solids such that you can beneficially reuse them as compost, you can significantly reduce that manure-related pillar of on-farm emissions by anywhere between 19 to 50%. So we're investing in projects like that. In addition, uh, as I mentioned, you can reduce on-farm emissions by modifying how feed is produced. So we're working with a conventional producer in Washington right now, interseeding or intercropping uh, multiple species to keep down weeds, to improve soil carbon and to reduce the amount of pesticides that they're using. So that's just a sample of some of the projects that we're developing on farm. Amazing. So these projects require investment and a lot of farmers, particularly smaller 
you know, are feeling the squeeze. It's tough to be in agriculture on a small scale in any commodity, but particularly dairy. So tell us a little bit about, you know, whoever would like to answer the question about the investing part, the funding of these projects and how it is that you are partnering. So when it comes to adopting climate smart practices or these interventions that I just described, we start that process by talking to producers to understand what are their long-term goals and desires for their operation? What are the unique characteristics of that farm? Every farmer, every farm is completely unique. So that presents a subset of solutions that we can then develop on farm. And important in that conversation, as we're working to better understand what are the producer's goals for their operation and what are the right mitigation solutions that exist is a really tactical discussion of what are the existing barriers that are keeping that producer from adopting a no or lower greenhouse gas emitting solution today. So we certainly know that financial access is a major barrier, but not the only one. So when it comes to helping producers that we partner with address that hurdle, we provide funding in the form of grants directly to those producers to offset costs and frankly de-risk adoption of introducing a new feed supplement, building a new uh, manure management capability, changing how their feed is produced. In addition to that financial investment, which has ranged anywhere from approximately $2,000 to $40,000 for a farm that we've worked with, we also bring in subject matter experts who can truly partner with that producer in understanding their options and mitigating their options. And so part of our support comes in the form of direct grants. Part of our support comes in the form of bringing to bear the best academic <laughs> experts and innovators and consultants to really hold all of our hands to make sure we're making a good decision. And last, we provide uh, support in the form of project management and project oversight. So with every project that we develop on farm, getting that project in the ground, finding the right financing to make that possible and the right experts to ensure that that is the right solution for that farm. That's really the beginning. The long tail of all of our work is in how do we measure and monitor the effects of that project to make sure that the greenhouse gas benefit or climate benefit that we anticipated up front is actually realized over time. So those are some of the buckets that we're that we're using to support the producers that we work with. The you know carbon neutrality by definition means that the footprint of the of the product that you generate gets neutralized in the environment. And so it's not a requirement that every part of that neutralization has to happen in a specific place. By far, the most important thing that we do is the work on farm to reduce emissions there. That is by far the most important work that we do. But we also use carbon offsets for sure. And that's an important part of what we do as well, you know, especially for a new company. You know, it would have been impossible for us at launch of our business to go out and have the farm projects in place. That would not have been possible to generate all the work on the farm before we ever had a revenue stream to support it. And so, you know, for us, the thing that I think will set us apart is the reductions that we're actually doing in the field with farmers. That is, like I said, by far the most important thing that we do. So if you take a look at the current projects that are underway in scoping right now, you've got 23,000 metric tons of carbon that'll get reduced uh, from the environment from all of those projects, right? Now, one of the things that Ann will talk to you about in way more detail and way more eloquently than me is what it looks like to measure the outcome and when you start to get to count that outcome against your, uh, your reductions, right? 
let's say we put in a project that's going to reduce the amount of emissions that come from the manure side of a, of a farm, right? If we put in a solid liquid separator, that's going to take the reduction of that emission significantly down by having a better process in place for nutrient management coming off the waste stream. Well, when that project goes in place, we can't start counting the emissions reductions until we can measure and verify it, right? We can't just say, here's an estimate. We're just going to put that in the bank and say, we're all good. Trust us. We have to say, let's get the project in place. Let's create the mechanisms to measure the impact of those reductions. Let's get them verified. And then let's put that into our carbon bank when we can do all of those things. Until that project comes fully to the measurement verification stage, we won't count those reductions. So part of the way that we will show consumers that we are carbon neutral, even though we're doing that, we won't count those reductions yet. We're doing projects right now. We have been doing projects already that are reducing the emissions in the atmosphere today that we don't count those reductions yet. We can't count them for us because of that credibility concern until we can measure and verify and have a rock solid way for consumers to say, yes, we know that you're counting that correctly. Doesn't mean we're not doing them, just means we're not counting them yet. So the emissions reductions are occurring right now on some of those projects that we won't be able to verify and count in some cases for another year or two. And so carbon credits become the right avenue for us to bridge that gap. When we say we've got something that's starting, how do we make sure that we can have it neutralized from the beginning? So if we've got projects that start in place at the same time as the projects that we're bringing to life, we may still be a year or two away from being able to count and verify those reductions. And so the carbon credit becomes a really important tool for us to neutralize the impact right now before we get to the point that we can measure and verify those projects. So it helps us to move fast. It helps us to expand. But the ultimate goal for us is that we will get to the point where we're more than neutralizing our entire footprint just at the farm. Um, and obviously, our mission is about radically decarbonizing the food industry, right? But the only way that we can really do that is by creating more economic opportunities for the farmers who adopt those climate smart practices in their operations. So those two ideas are really, really interconnected for farmers, and especially farmers that take a multi-generational view of time. But as we grow, that will become a less and less and less important part of what we do because more of our projects will be in their lifespan. And a lot of these projects will have lifespans that are 10 and 20 and 30 years long. And so continuing to build that project list, that project portfolio continues to build your base of, of the emissions that are coming right from the supply chain itself. Great, great answer. And you just segued right into my next question, which is tell me about that measurement verification reporting. Yes, happy to. I mean, we talk internally that our fantastic farm partners and our amazing solutions can get us really far, but to truly be the best in the world at decarbonizing agriculture, we, we need the right data and analytics and the ability to track how implementation of a solution that we're most interested in because it can abate greenhouse gas emissions affects all the other aspects of operations that our producer partners care about. Things like profitability and water quality and animal welfare, et cetera. And so the monitoring that we do or the carbon accounting that we do occurs in a number of different places. There's the carbon accounting that we do to determine what is the climate impact of our products or the life cycle assessment. And then there's the carbon accounting that we do, as we just mentioned, to track how is the project that we've developed actually delivering the climate benefit and the exact way that we monitor and for how long we monitor varies with the specific tactic that we're using to reduce emissions. So how we monitor for the effectiveness of a feed supplement 
looks really different than how we monitor for the effectiveness of a manure management solution. But at the end of the day, it typically involves close collaboration with our producer partners to ideally take advantage of the records that are easily accessible to farmers and reduce the farmer's burden of this measurement verification and reporting by engaging academic experts or MRV experts, as it's sometimes referred to, to quantify that benefit. So when it comes to measuring the effectiveness of the projects that we deliver on farm, how we quantify their climate benefit really varies. So with feed supplements, we're currently working on a seaweed trial in partnership with Colorado State, who will be using a green feed system, which is a very specific piece of equipment that can actually track the amount of methane that cows exhale. That level of, of rigor to test the effectiveness, we know not every farmer can implement, but we're hoping to build up the body of work and deliver research trials that can then help us hopefully streamline and scale that solution in the future. The monitoring that we do for a manure management project, for example, involves the very glamorous task of actually going out into the field and collecting samples of that manure effluent pre and post treatment so we can actually track what is the reduction in volatile solids because that has a direct correlation to the climate impact of those projects. When it comes to the wild world where we're actually trying to get more carbon back into the ecosystem via afforestation, for example, that's where our monitoring today is going to follow the path that has been established by existing carbon credit protocols. Got it. So these projects, they're long tail projects. They take a while to show results. What is your time frame in terms of have you modeled out how long it might take neutral as a brand to become whatever the maximum you feel is achievable? in carbon neutrality within its operations? Yes, great, great question. So yes, we have. And some of the solutions that we're looking at, like adding feed supplements or fuel switching, those are pretty instantaneous solutions. Those will deliver a climate benefit as soon as you modify on-farm operations. Other solutions that we've talked about, we're working with a couple of producers who are exploring the possibility of planting more trees in marginal lands, for example. But anytime we're trying to add more carbon back to the system, you're exactly right. That's a very long-term play that we're looking at. And so in our portfolio of projects, we're really trying to balance these competing needs of wanting to, as quickly as possible, reduce our reliance on offsets for our carbon neutral product status and rely instead on our on-farm projects. And when we're mapping that out over the next three years, what we're seeing is that it's going to take a little bit of time for the investments that we're making on farms today to realize significant reductions. So this year, our project portfolio is expected to reduce 4% of the climate impact of our products. And of course, these bets need to double down. So as we aggressively grow our business, we also are aggressively growing our on-farm efforts. So in 2022, it's 4% of the reduction um, is occurring on farms to compensate for our climate impact. Next year in 2023, our projects and development are going to reduce 20% of the climate impact caused by our products. And the following year, we're broaching close to a third. So the our idea is that over time, we're continually ramping up that number such that it's truly the on-farm portfolio of projects that we're developing with our producers that makes our product carbon neutral. 
Awesome. Thanks for that. So I just have a question around, you know, premiumization is that so there's there's a price to the consumer on shelf, right? And we are seeing now differentiated products, as I mentioned earlier, and I'm not even talking about alternative dairy. Let's just stay within, you know, dairy. Is there a premium back to the farm for supplying you guys directly today? Or is that a thought for any time in the future? How does it work? Neutral's mission is to reward producers for adopting climate smart agricultural practices to fight climate change by scaling adoption of climate smart agricultural practices and to meet consumers where they're at providing carbon neutral options for the staples that they have. So there's a version of our growth where we become big enough that we have a completely segregated supply chain and we could just pay producers a premium. As we're starting out and working to source our milk through existing cooperatives, the best way that we can incentivize them and reward them for adopting climate smart agricultural practices is to present them with a cohesive value proposition for the benefit that those climate smart practices will deliver, including but not limited to the greenhouse gas emission reduction, opportunities to improve profitability, to increase the resilience of their operations and the grant funding that we provide. That's the best way that we award that adoption right now. That could change in the future if we had a completely segregated supply chain. The other thing that I wanted to mention specifically to dairy producers that we're really excited about is one aspect of scalability is how quickly can we get to meaningful on-farm projects that have significant impact. And every farmer is unique. Every farm is unique. We never are going to shortchange the very (laughs) meaty and important conversations that happen up front between neutral and a producer as we're zeroing our way into what is the right solution to to implement on-farm. But we also know that we don't have patience just to have those relationships come to us organically or in an ad hoc manner. So we're really excited that next week we're kicking off a partnership with FarmRaise. Uh, I know that the CEO of FarmRaise was a former podcast member at Future of Agriculture, but they're just a fantastic startup. Came out of Stanford. They're doing an amazing job connecting producers to conservation funding to realize their goals. And we're really thrilled that Neutral's investment will be from now on a source of private funds that is made available to anyone who wants to set up a farm raise account. They can do so for free or they have kind of a freemium model. You can set up an account for free to access the funding or pay for a higher level of service. But we're really excited about the partnership with farm raise as a way to reach more producers and quickly provide them with the information they need to determine if partnering with neutral makes sense. You know, we work with the farmers to identify what kind of relevant projects might make the most sense for them. We scope them. We bring technical expertise and resource projects. We fund them in full or in part, including collaborating with other groups like NRCS. Almost every project that we're doing, I think, has an NRCS component to some some of the funding, right? So we take our funding and match it with other funding sources that are available to bring those solutions forward for farmers. So especially with that, that kind of economic pressure that they're under today, not that many producers have the ability to just spend money solely to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. That just isn't the reality for most of these folks, even folks that see that as an opportunity. That's why every single project that we fund and implement has other co-benefit to the farmers. If it didn't, candidly, not a lot of people are interested in doing this kind of work, but the projects that we're implementing to reduce carbon footprint, they can improve water quality at the farm. They can improve air quality. In some cases, they even make the farms more profitable. And so, When we're working with farmers, part of the way that we identify the right solution 
is we don't tell them what to do. I mean, I grew up on a farm. I spent a lot of time with farmers. I know the quickest way to get your ass kicked off a farm is trying to tell a farmer how to run their farm. It's not effective. You can't come in and tell them, I know more about how to run your farm than you do. You'll never get invited back, right? So what we do is we talk to them about the types of interventions that we have in total and what the co-benefits are, and then try to understand which of those co-benefits make the most sense to a farmer. What are they trying to execute? Typically, if we walk onto a farm and say, here's a menu sort of of a dozen types of interventions that we can do, they're already thinking about a couple of them. They're not thinking about them for their greenhouse gas emissions. <laughs> they're thinking about them for the other co-benefits that are happening, right? So those co-benefits could be things like improved animal welfare, shade and biodiversity from silvopasture implementations on a farm that's sequestering carbon in the field. Or it can be increased milk yield from a forage improvement that also reduces enteric methane production. Or it can be improved soil health and resiliency from better nutrient management processes that reduce the methane emissions. So every one of those projects that we put in place has to have a co-benefit to make it valuable enough for the farmer. And when we're able to bring funding and expertise to get that project off the ground and to make sure that it runs effectively, the farmer is the one who gets the benefit of all that co-benefit action, right? So we take the benefit of the carbon reduction. That's how we neutralize the impact of what we do. All the other co-benefits of those projects accrue to the farmer. So when we're coming there, we're not just doing a thing for us and for our consumers. We're doing a thing that has to make sense for the whole ecosystem of that food supply chain. It has to make sense for the farmer or else it never happens. And if it never happens there, we can never make that promise to consumers about how we reduce that emission, right? So we have to have a solution that works all the way through the supply chain. And when you do that, and it, and it turns out that that's also right in line with what more and more consumers are looking for every day, you've got a great business opportunity. That doesn't mean it's easy. It's hard. <laughs> it's hard work to bring this to the table. That's why nobody else is doing it. If it were easy, there's a bunch of people that have way more money and way bigger teams than we do that are not doing this. You know, And like I said, I mean, good farmers are the solution. This is the way we fix this. We don't fix it just by hydro credits in Brazil. I mean, there can be some good things out of that potentially too, but that isn't the solve. The solve is to work with farmers to reduce the actual impact in the supply chain. And so the more of that we do, the more we can amplify our impacts for consumers and for farmers. And you know that, that to me is critically important. All right. What a great place to end. Thank you so much to Jennifer Barney for bringing this episode here today. And of course, thank you to both Jim and Ann for sharing this perspective. I uh, really do find this fascinating. And uh, I love how they got into a lot of the nuts and bolts of sort of like the how behind. How are we going to make all this work? I encourage you to go learn more about Neutral Foods at their website, eatneutral.com. And look at their packaging. I think it's just really compelling. They've got And they've got right on there on the milk carton, this milk fights climate change, which is, uh, I think, very on trend for for where the market seems to be going. And uh, as I said at the outset, I think just the very beginning uh, of what we're seeing in terms of not just buying carbon offsets, as you heard they have to do in the short term, but uh, creating these carbon insets or, or, or actually reducing the carbon footprint of their supply chain very much an interesting part of the future of agriculture. Thank you very much to Jim, Ann, and Jennifer uh, for this great episode. And thank you to Sound Ag for their support for this quarter. And most of all, thank you to you for your time and your attention. I really don't take it lightly. I'll be back next week with another story of ag innovation.